This is TechFan385. Very good. Welcome to Tech Fan number 385. I'm your host, David Cohen, recording solo this week. Tim is unfortunately afflicted with a seasonal illness, and uh, it's the sort of thing that really kind of has affected his throat and doesn't really make it conducive to him recording a show. So um, he suggested maybe I just run a solo show this week, which is what I intend to do. So, first things first, we've got some follow-up from, from our some of our previous discussions on previous shows. Um, last week we were talking about uh, AT&T and their uh, 5G marketing shenanigans, basically trying to pretend that they have a 5G network, even though it's not. It's just the latest upgrades to their 4G network. Um, a couple of days after we... Uh, I th- in fact, I think it was the day we finished that show, uh, Tim emailed me a... Uh, the links with with the uh, title good uh, and the link was to a story that Sprint are suing AT&T for um, confusing the market by by doing this uh, and um, yes I think I think you can gather from Tim's response he hopes uh, and I would hope as well that uh, Sprint prevails in that lawsuit the reality of course is that the lawsuit will take a couple of years to come to court by which time there probably will be real 5G services available but nevertheless, um, the AT&T don't, certainly don't seem to be being put off by this. They're uh, being quite bullish, <coughs> which kind of fits with what they've been doing previously. So we'll see what, what what happens with that. Perhaps if they get wind that their judge is not favourably disposed, then they will uh, change what they do. Second piece of uh, follow-up is um, was sent in by um, long-term listeners to the show and frequent correspondent uh, Brendan Rowland. And he basically sent me a link to uh, a decision by the uh, German Federal Cartel Commission, which is the German antitrust regulator, who have basically said that they are compelling Facebook in Germany to no longer pull data from different sources and tie it to a Facebook account. So this is where you, as you're browsing around the web, if you have a Facebook account and you see things like like buttons or... um, that sort of thing, or other kind of Facebook cookies. And also if you use Instagram and WhatsApp, the activity on there being linked to your Facebook account, that has been made to be um, no longer allowed in Germany. Though, of course, again, Facebook are appealing this decision. Um, but uh, the reality is is that the German um, the German uh, Federal Cartel Commission has been investigating this behaviour since 2015. So this isn't a rushed response or anything that was recent. Um, and they have a reputation for really being on very good legal footing when they make their decisions. So it's unlikely that Facebook's going to be able to overturn this in the German court. And of course, what often happens in Germany um, often then covers the entire European Union, um, which is going to cause Facebook uh, a massive headache, to be honest. They already claim to be um, compliant with GDPR, which is the German data privacy regulation, but uh, this is not being pitched as a, as a data privacy um, decision, uh, more of an antitrust decision. So um, the uh, implications of that obviously are quite different. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that goes and how Facebook responds. But, um, you know, it's another sign that regulators and governments are starting to wake up to the sort of power that certain social media companies have on the Internet now, which is, um, I think, is hopefully a good thing for all of us. So, um, yeah, what's been going on with me this week? Uh, I've been quite busy at work. Um, been doing not an awful lot of tech stuff. To be honest, I'm a bit short of time at at the moment, to be honest, which is frustrating. Um, There are a whole load of projects tech-related that I really like to be getting on with at the moment. 
Um, I'm really looking at getting some sort of video security system set up around the house. My wife's very keen to have cameras on the outside of the house. We live in um, quite a nice estate, which is in itself in a not very good area. Um, so there is a, an, an element of crime that we sometimes get around here. Um, I, I personally am not convinced that cameras are particularly useful. Uh, in Britain nowadays, most crimes are committed by people wearing a hoodie, uh, and the hoodie is pulled down over their face to the point that you can't really see them, even if you get them on a camera. Consequently, um, I don't think that cameras are necessarily a deterrent to a um, thief or a, a criminal who wants to do something to your property in the UK. But... Um, Sometimes these things are more about making the uh, owner-occupier feel more comfortable in their home, and certainly I think that's the case with my wife. And um, obviously, if, if it makes them feel more comfortable and feel more secure, um, then that's something that is worth investing in. But the problem is, is that I'm really struggling to figure out what the best solution could be. I don't really want to be putting out cameras and having to drill holes through walls and run cable. Um, and yet I see very mixed reviews about some of the wireless stuff that's available now. You can get these cameras that um, basically the battery is meant to last a year, so you can kind of stick it on the outside of your house um, and then only take it down and recharge it relatively infrequently, and that will then send wireless data when it picks up motion of video to an app and obviously to a cloud service. Um, and there are a couple that apparently will do that without hitting you with a whole load of extra subscription charges. So that's the sort of thing I've got in mind. But, um, you know, I, I read mixed reviews of these products. Some say that their um, sensitivity to motion is too much, which means the batteries don't last 12 months, they last a month. Uh, and obviously, if you've got them mounted up high outside your house, having to get up there on the ladder and pull them down to recharge the battery every month is going to get old very quickly. And the other thing I read is that many people say that the motion sensitivity is not good enough in that the cameras will, will trigger, they'll, they'll, they'll um, you know, they'll not trigger at all, or alternatively, they'll, you know, they'll trigger for trivial things and they won't pick up, um, you know, more determined things. So for instance, they might be triggered by a car going past, but somebody walks up your path and they won't actually trigger for 30, 40 seconds after they see that event. So, um, that's a tricky one, really, because obviously um, that seriously reduces the uh, efficacy of the cameras um, if, if, they're, if they're not that reliable. Uh, and it's not, not a small amount of money to invest, though it's not so much the cash I'm worried about, it's the time I will have to spend putting these things up. Um, it's going to be a pain to, to yeah, as I say, get up ladders, drill holes, put them up on the outside of the house and then find they don't work very well. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to do about that really I'm really not keen to get a company in to do it for me because then it gets expensive very quickly and um, that is also something I don't want and as I say you know, I personally don't feel that the um, the actual state of security benefits are realised by having these uh, camera systems up I don't believe I will ever catch a criminal doing something on my house um, and I think with the whole hoodie effect, I'm not so sure that cameras are that much of a deterrent anymore either. Um, I know the idea is, is you, know, you, you make your house look like um, it might be trouble and the criminal will move on to somebody else. But um, I actually think most petty criminals now just don't care because they know they're probably not going to get caught. So, um, you know, I, I, I've been in situations where even if you have good camera evidence, you give that to the police and they go, yeah, well, Unfortunately, we don't know who this person is, so that doesn't really help us unless we catch them somewhere else. Um, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to think about that a bit more. But um, that's the project that's kind of occupying my mind at the moment. Okay, let's have a look at what we have here to talk about. So, um, as is our want, we have been compiling a few things in our in our notes. Um, first thing I want to talk about is uh, news that came out this week that Amazon is buying Eero. So Eero is um, one of the, well, I don't know how, quite how successful they are, but, but they're one of these companies, they're, I think they're, they, they're a startup, they're certainly a small company anyway, who um, sell a wireless mesh product. So the idea behind um, the Eero solution is that if you want to improve the Wi-Fi coverage in your house, rather than doing what we all used to do, which is you might buy 
a repeater and stick that somewhere else and then try and get it to re-radiate your Wi-Fi. Um, if you've ever used one of those products, they're a pest to set up. They're very tricky to set up. Um, putting it in the right place is difficult. Um, and you can often find they don't work too well. Um, you can find that your devices have struggled to pick up the Wi-Fi off the repeater, presumably because the way it's presenting the SSID and um, or the fact that your device can see two um, SSIDs of the same name um, causes confusion. So um, mesh networks are, are a way of solving that problem because mesh networks basically have a lot more smarts in the repeating devices uh, and they work like a home version of a uh, like a business or public Wi-Fi system. If you go into a hotel which has Wi-Fi, they will have probably put on each floor in the hotel, they might have five, uh, depending on how big it is. Big city hotel might have 10, 15, 20 even uh, access points. Certainly if you go to a conference or to a, a big public space like a stadium, they will have hundreds of access points all serving the same Wi-Fi signal. Uh, and the way they do that is they um, they all connect back to a central Wi-Fi processor that actually um, optimizes the network to make sure that it works properly and also handles all the device registration. So mesh networking is very much the same concept for a home uh, consumer environment and rather than having a central Wi-Fi processor like a, a big Cisco or um, other like kind of big wireless prevent, uh, network pro provider might have um, is each device itself is, is intelligent and smart and they communicate with each other um, and they basically optimize the network that way. So it's pretty much plug and play. You um, put the first unit in, you tell it which is your home network, and then any other networks, you any other devices you plug in, just self-configure automatically. And they handle all the mediation to the devices, which means you get a much better Wi-Fi coverage. It's all self-managing and automated. And um, by all accounts, these systems, which are not cheap, because you are buying two or three quite smart devices, um, but if, apparently they give you much better Wi-Fi coverage um, in a large home than if you use your own systems and repeaters. So Eero is, um, as I said, I don't know the market leader, but I've heard of them because they advertise very strongly on many of the podcasts that I listen to, which is a typical thing for a small company, small tech company. Um, they have been acquired by Amazon. So um, fair to say that I guess a lot of people were had mixed feelings on this. Uh, the problem being that often what happens with these sorts of acquisitions is the product actually goes away. Uh, the technology gets incorporated into the uh, purchasing company's products, but the actual system itself goes away. And secondly, what often happens as well is that um, support for existing users either disappears or definitely goes downhill. Um, particularly if that first thing happens and the product goes away, then obviously support resources is also going to um, disappear. And the second thing, of course, is that these things are firing all your wireless network data all over the house. Um, Amazon is a company that likes data. They're, um, they kind of improve their services on the back of data. And uh, if you're using... Uh, Amazon's Echo devices, then obviously you're giving them data. Presumably you can see Eero technology ending up inside Amazon Echoes because they are still, they are things that are wireless that are connected up in your house. Um, and so there are concerns that that data privacy would, uh, would, would suffer. Now that, you know, as always, Eero has issued statements that, um, that they will continue to maintain the right privacy controls as they have do have done before the acquisition. But the difficulty is, is that that'll, that'll be fine for today. I don't think anybody's expecting anything to change in the short term. But in the long term, what happens is people leave. Um, the home, the owning company takes a less hands on, less hands off approach. Uh, and so those promises might hold up today, but they might not hold up in the future. And if you remain an Eero customer, what does that mean? So, um, yeah, it's a concern. Um, so I, I guess the, the problem is, is that it's difficult in, in today's tech tech world, it's very difficult to commit to a product 
that's run by a small company because this happens so often uh, and very often the company that acquires it are um you know they're not the people you want to buy from for whatever reason and um, that causes an issue because what do you do ultimately you end up with products you either buy and then they disappear for after a few years or alternatively um you know you have to just go along with whatever the whatever the implications of the acquisition are and it seems to me that it's much more difficult now for smaller companies to grow big uh, and succeed in the long term. I'm going to talk about that a little bit on the Wicked Trolling this week. Um, and um, even if you are successful, it doesn't always last. Uh, and um, that that has implications for us as, as technology users. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I've got mixed feelings about this one myself. I, I'm not a Nero user. Don't really... I've got a three-story house, but our coverage is normally okay principally because the house is is internally is mostly just timber frame so it doesn't really slow down the wi-fi that much but um a lot of people are in the situation when they need those devices and obviously uh amazon getting into this uh, space is is concerning for them i guess right next one what else do we have in here Oh yeah, here's a here's a. So we were talking about radio, <laughs> radio waves with Wi-Fi. So here's another one. Yeah, somebody who broadcasts on the radio, uh, or the te- or radio technology on the television anyway. This is a host from Fox News, and uh, he said on air this week, this guy's called Pete Pete Hegseth. Fox News obviously is known as being the US president's favourite TV news source um, and has a, everyone accepts, has a pretty strong right-wing bias. Um, uh, And of course, the right-wing is often where you get people who poo-poo science as being just not worth worth, um, bothering with for some reason. Anyway, uh, he said on air that he has not washed his hands for 10 years because, and I quote, germs are not a real thing. He said, bacteria do not exist because I can't see them with the naked eye. He says, I inoculate myself. So this is related to the sort of people who um, are very much against the vaccination movement, I think. I wonder with these statements, he's trying to subtly align himself with that movement because the people who who are anti-vaccination say that vaccinations are dangerous and um, they don't want vaccinations because they risk their children's health, which is a, a kind of slightly counter approach to what vaccinations are meant to do, which is obviously to protect you from diseases that might hurt you. And there is a strong undercurrent of this of people going, oh, you know, just, we're, we're over-medicated nowadays, and um, Big Pharma is is basically creating illnesses and and, and creating um, health fears in order to in order to sell their products and, and and I'm sympathetic in some ways to that point of view we probably are over medicated but going along with that argument is this thing that's saying well um, you know our, our children never get exposed to anything so never build up their own natural immunity uh, and that is a problem um, and and that's where things start to fall down because it becomes very anecdotal at that point and this is what this guy is saying he's saying um, I just wash my hands a lot. Uh, sorry, sorry, he's not washed his hands. This guy says he, he's he's not washing washing his hands because germs aren't real. And and later on he said his remarks were intended to be a joke. Yeah, we live in a society where people walk around with bottles of Perel, the hand sanitizer, in their pockets, and they sanitize nineteen thousand times a day as if that's going to save their life. I take care of myself and all that, but I don't obsess over everything all the time. Of the public reaction, he said it was ridiculous how people took things so literally and seriously so that their heads explode. So the difficulty is that, um, you know, it's overall him making a joke, but he knows full well that um, Fox News is a platform where some people take everything they hear on Fox News quite literally. Yeah, so to make a uh, air quotes joke of that nature um, is a little bit irresponsible. Yeah, uh, and and I find myself questioning quite how much of a joke it is. 
it seems to me that a lot of people on those sorts of platforms say things that um, they believe in because um, in the past they've kept them quiet to themselves and now in today's environment they feel they can get away with saying those things more. Um, it's a, uh, a well-understood scientific fact that bacteria and germs exist and that if you want to prevent the transfer of infection, of infection um, between people, and it's not just to yourself, but it's also passed on to other people, you need to wash your hands. You need to remove germs that you were picked up from the things that primarily touch all the dirty services that, that we encounter in the world. Um, and um, to say that it's not necessary, uh, particularly when you have no scientific insight to that, is really stupid. And what I find interesting is that you know, this guy works on TV. There are so many things that are required on a technical level to take the words that he say and transmit those and provide them to the people who are consuming that content that on a technical level he can't see with his eyes and he probably can't understand. And yet he's happy to rely on those things and yet he says he's not happy to rely on washing his hands for... Um, keeping germs away and um you know i think that just demonstrates the sort of hypocrisy of these sorts of idiots tell you who's not an idiot though god i had to reach deep for that link then i'll tell you who's not an idiot that's larry uh, who runs um owc Otherworld Computing, MaxSales.com. He's not an idiot because he has a company and a website and a business that sells great technical products to people like you and me. Uh, I bet he washes his hands. Um, and uh, over on MaxSales.com, they have a whole uh, range of great stuff that you can buy. Um, something that, that caught my eye this week, that's new new from them, is um, Tim and I have talked about these um these uh, hard drive docks that we like, the kind of toaster style things where you um, just plug a bare drive, hard drive into it, it connects your computer and then immediately it connects you up. And the advantage of these is that it allows you to, um, uh, allows you to keep bare hard drives around, use them as storage um, and very easily swap them back and forth without worrying about cables and that sort of stuff. So we're big fans of these. Well, they have a new model of these available of the OWC drive dock um, that they've announced and that is a USB-C version specifically obviously aimed at people with the uh, latest Mac, Mac, uh, Mac laptops the MacBook Pros which are all um, completely USB-C so if you have a MacBook Pro and you want to have a drive dock on your home desk so that you can connect, connect quickly transfer or add data to your system or back it up then the uh, USB-C model, which is um, which is is uh, USB 3.1 Generation 2, so that's the highest speed USB-C, um, will will sort you out. Now they also do um, a Thunderbolt 2 and a USB-C USB USB 3.1 model um, combined, and also a straight USB USB 3.1. Crikey, these delineations are hard. I, I know that. 3.1 Gen 2 is slightly faster than 3.1 Gen 1, but um, I don't think it's that much faster. I think it's more about the connector, um, Type-C being the connector for Gen 2. Um, the whole USB standards body really needs to get themselves sorted out. It would be much easier if they just called these things USB 2, 3, 4 and 5, and we all kind of knew what the connector was and what the speed was. But anyway, um, if you have a Type-C equipped computer and you want a drive dock, then um, the OWC drive dock now has a one specifically aimed at you. So thanks very much to Otherworld Computing for continuing to sponsor our show. Um, I'm not saying it, it makes the show possible because we've had the show without sponsorship before, but I, I know from what I've talked to Tim about is it makes doing the show much easier to have the support of Otherworld Computing, and we thank them for their continued support. So last week we talked about the uh, abuse of the uh, enterprise Apple IDs, developer IDs, by Google and uh, Facebook 
uh, and the temporary suspension of those IDs. Now, as, as we said last week, these IDs are designed to allow you to um, distribute internally developed apps to your own employees um, and um, allow you to effectively have these apps available to your employees without having them available on the uh, to everybody on the general uh, app store. Uh, and um, Facebook and Google were using it to um, basically sidestep the um, Apple's the App Store rules uh, and sell or distribute apps that that were in violation of the rules directly to customers, um, and they weren't they weren't employees of the companies concerned. So it turns out that apparently. This is not the uh, Google and Facebook are not the only people doing this, and there is widespread abuse of this system because TechCrunch, who broke the original story uh, on Facebook, have continued to look into this. And it turns out there are plenty of companies um, doing exactly the same thing. Um, TechCrunch has, has uncovered a dozen hardcore pornography apps and a dozen real money gambling apps that have escaped Apple's oversight. Uh, the developers pass Apple's weak enterprise certificate screening process or piggybacked on legitimate approval, allowing them to sidestep the App Store and Cupertino's judicial safeguards. So um, it sounds to me like uh, this is an area where Apple's kind of dropped the ball. Because uh, you can imagine a situation, I'm speculating here, that... Um, it's kind of like an honor system that uh, Apple expects anybody signing up to this program to abide by the policy that explicitly states you may not use, distribute, or otherwise make your internal use applications available to your customers. They are for employees only. Um, and yet, people have been doing that and then selling these apps. And um, uh, these apps that are in violation of the App Store rules. And because Apple is relying on people just signing and agreeing to the policy, it doesn't sound like they've been looking at these apps at all. Um, uh, they are relying on the companies to police themselves, which is fine when a legitimate business is using them. Um, you then get the degree of uh, a legitimate business like Facebook or Google saying, okay, well, we, you know, we're going to use it, abide by the rules most of the time, but in these certain circumstances, we're going to bend them and see if we can get away with it. And then you have, obviously have companies who are effectively profiting from distributing stuff. They know they that will not appear on the main app store um, and um, exploiting the fact that it's not subject to scrutiny. So uh, it sounds like Apple really has a, job to do here um, and really go through go through these apps that are that are being distributed on, on this program and really make sure that they are legitimate and comply with the app store rules and are not being sold to other people um, there is a bunch of uh, a bunch of, of uh, the the article here uh, that um, TechCrunch have listed is extremely comprehensive and they they also point out that there are many um, people using um, particular company names on here who are selling apps that apparently have nothing to do with their company. So, for instance, Taiwanese uh, technology manufacturers who are being used to distribute a whole load of uh, direct gambling apps. Um, and um, so there, there is a, obviously a, a compliance problem there. And whether the company's concerned know that their apps have been stolen... Um, or whether it's happening legitimately from within inside the company or what, I don't know. But uh, definitely Apple needs to do a serious program on these and shut them down. And before we get to our wiki trolling segment, um, just one, just another one. This, this one was actually a couple of weeks old now. This was an uh, op-ed piece on The Verge, um, written by a guy called Nick Stat. Um, and the headline kind of, you know, Start, sounds okay. The iPhone SE is the best minimalist phone right now. Uh, and then the subtitle is, if you use it right. Now, you can't buy the iPhone SE anymore. The iPhone SE was effectively the iPhone 6S put into the case of the uh, Apple iPhone 5S. So this had the 4-inch screen uh, and the familiar slab-sided uh, look and feel to it. And um, it was a very popular phone. Um, a lot of people were hoping it was going to get updated to more modern in, to more modern internals because a lot of people like the small form factor. 
Um, and um, it hasn't been, it has been discontinued now. We don't know whether anything like that has, has, come, has come out. Uh, and um, effectively, this article was written on the back of the clearance sale that, that occurred when the SE was discontinued. There was a $100 discount available on it. Um, and um, this chap, this chap bought one um, and, uh, you know, waxes lyrical about how great it is and how much he likes it and everything like that. But then he comes up with a use case that blew my mind, really, um, and suggested perhaps that he wasn't truly in touch with uh, an audience. He purchased his phone. Space Grey 32 gig purely because I want to pop my nano sim onto it into it on nights and weekends when I don't want the full 5.8 inch iPhone XS screen taunting me to open Instagram and Twitter two dozen times in a given hour. I plan to keep Spotify, Google Maps, and maybe a read if you reading podcasting news apps on it, but nothing else. No Slack, no Twitter, no Instagram, none of that. I want the phone to function mostly as a phone instead of the always half-open window into a digital life I'd rather leave behind when I shut my laptop down every evening. And uh, this just kind of blew my mind. So basically saying that he's too distracted by his phone nights and evenings. And his solution to that is not to put his phone down. It's to buy another phone and then take his SIM and swap it. I I don't believe he's actually doing this. I think this is a canard, because anybody who's actually done SIM swaps on a phone on an iPhone knows it's pain in the pain in the neck. You have to get that little paperclip style thing, and and it's very fiddly. And um, the Nano SIM is by its name tiny, uh, and it's very easy to drop or lose. And to think that you would actually be swapping it on a regular basis from one phone to another is ridiculous. Yeah, um, and. You know why? Why in this circumstance would you need to keep the SIM if you wanted to switch to a, a, a lower a, a, a device with less apps installed on it? Why would you need to keep the SIM anyway? Presumably he's on Wi-Fi when he's at home. Yeah, which means that any calls that come on his regular phone will also be can be configured to be pushed to the other phone or to a tablet or something else, so he could take them. Um, uh, the whole thing just came across to me as, as kind of a, a little bit of indulgent claptrap, really, here. Uh, and then it goes on about a minimalist phone movements and, uh, you know, how some people like to have a minimalist phone, which, you know, I have some sympathy with. I can kind of agree with in some circumstances. But what I can't, what I can't get behind is the idea that you would go to a minimalist phone just at certain times of the day and that if you are into a minimalist phone movement, the, the way to get into that is to have a big, expensive, brand-new phone and then buy another phone. Yeah, and also as well, the iPhone SE is not exactly a cut-down minimalist phone. It's pretty much as capable as, as the phone, as the XS phone he's talking about now. There's nothing... You, there's very little you can't do on a on an XS that, on an SE that you can't do on that you can do on the XS. Um, they run the same operating system. I mean that will change probably this year, but at the moment they run the same operating system. They'll run mostly the same apps. It's just the SE will not run them quite as well because it's got a slow processor in it. So um, it, you know, to me, the minimalist phone is is going to. If you want to carry a minimalist spare to avoid distraction, you want to get a cheap Nokia which does nothing at all because it sounds to me like the problem this guy has is nothing to do with the technology that's offered to him. It's with his own personal attention span. Um, I, if I was in this situation, I want to do that. I would just turn off notifications for all the, all the, um, all the, all, all the things, the, the slack and the, and the things that he doesn't want notifying him at night. Uh, or, you know, Hey, <laughs> maybe put the phone down completely and just ignore it. Yeah, what is it you need to be using on there that you that's going to distract you at night? You know, why not just put the phone down and do something else? Uh, and if you want to have, um, you know, if you want to be reading or something like that, then is buying another phone the right answer to that? Does he not have old phones or anything like that? Uh, perhaps use screen time to limit those apps at night, you know? The problem is, of course, is that really what he's saying is he doesn't want to, he, he wants to be, he thinks he wants to be able to put the phone down and pick up something else. 
but he also wants the, his main phone to be available there for those notifications in case something important happens and he has to do it. Because, you know, the Verge is at the fourth emergency service and sometimes they have to respond straight away. I just thought the article was stupid and I thought the... Um, the idea behind it was stupid, and, I, and I, I really thought, if you want to wax lyrical about how good the iPhone SE is, this is not the way to go about it. Okay, so final thing to talk about today. Um, obviously, it'll be a slightly short show because there's only one of us here, which means there's only half the talking. <laughs> so, moving on to our wiki trolling segment for this week. Um, the, uh, the topic this week is BlackBerry Limited. So, um, most people know who BlackBerry are. They used to be known as Research in Motion. They were for a long time. And they invented, the, as the name suggests, the BlackBerry. Um, but actually, if you, if you weren't there for the beginning of the smartphone revolution, it's, it's easy not to understand how huge BlackBerry were. Uh, and really how... They drove many of the things that we have today in our modern smartphones. Um, were invented by BlackBerry long before you you might think that they were capable. Basically, <laughs> phones were in a bit of a dark ages before 2007 when the iPhone came along because it was such a revolution. Uh, and before that, things were done very differently and BlackBerry were very much a company of that time. So they were founded in 1984 by two engineers, um, a guy called Mike Lazaridis and Douglas Fragan. Um, and they were engineering students, and what they did is initially is they set up a company to do um, to work on the Mobitex Wireless Package Switch Data Communications Network. Now, Mobitex was a um, it was a way of sending short bursts of text text data between different devices, and it was really designed as kind of like you know a business to business system to allow people to uh, send kind of scheduling instructions to guys in vans and things like that, um, short messages and, and things like that. The advantage of Mobitex was that it was a, it was a separate radio system that, that, that operated before cellular networks really got into this. Um, and it was also, um, be, because it was an, an independent network, that gave it a certain level of security that some of its users, like the emergency services, really appreciated it. It also meant that it wasn't clogged up with commercial traffic, which um, many of its users also appreciated as well. Uh, and it was pretty cheap to run and operate, um, but was also pretty um, you know, limited compared to what we have today. So anyway, after a few years of developing um, gateways for Mobitex and uh, kind of back-end stuff, um, including point-of-sale point terminals that could see Mobitex data, um, they got some venture funding and they worked, decided to get into more consumer-type stuff. Uh, and they invented a pager, a two-way messaging pager. Um, and, and that was quite revolutionary at the time because... Really, back then, page, pages used to be. I I, ha, I had two sets of pages. On my initial, when I um one of my early jobs, the first pager I had when I was in tech support was just a uh, it was a beeper. So, if somebody wanted to get hold of me, they would uh, dial a number and my pager would beep. And normally, the only person who had that number was my boss, and he wanted me because he wanted me to speak. He wanted to speak to me, so he would page me. My beeper would go off. I would call him, and I would say, "What do you need?" And he would say, "I need you to go here and fix this, or I need you to go and do that, whatever." And that was how it was. Later on, we got uh, message pages, and these these were using something similar to Mobitex. I think it might have been Mobitex actually. I forget. Anyway, um, this had a an LCD little LCD screen on it, and basically you could call the service and um, say, right, I want to page David Cohen, and please send him this this message. And you would read the operator a message, and they would then type it and send it to my pager, and it would scroll across the display. Now, when we first got the when we got the message pages, we thought, oh, wow, we were really cool, you know, because we could get we could get data wherever we were straight away telling us what to do and, and what was required or, you know, it would be call this person or have you followed up on this and, you know, that sort of stuff. Now, what BlackBerry did is they introduced a two-way message pager. So it had a keyboard on it and not only could you receive those messages, you could reply to them straight away. 
Um, and they very quickly expanded it into wireless email as well. Uh, and this is when BlackBerry turned into the industry behemoth it was going to come. Because what they also did uh, is they introduced a, a piece of software called the BlackBerry Enterprise Server. And the reason, by the way, the devices were called Blackberries is because the keyboards were like little ovals and they kind of looked like the, um, the little nodules that make up a BlackBerry fruit. That was what it made, it reminded the engineers of as well. So that's why they, they called it the BlackBerry. And so this pager could receive email because you had BlackBerry Enterprise Server, the software they ran, which uh, I installed Bez once and uh, it was so easy to set up. You basically set it up on a computer next to your Exchange server. You gave it a whole load of details. It was a wizard to take you through. And basically then it would then take the email it would communicate over the internet to blackberry's servers um all securely as well i mean this was this this was turn of centuries 2000 and it was all encrypted um even blackberry couldn't see the data um it was really a very well thought out and engineered solution and anyway what would happen is you would get an email and the the blackberry enterprise server would see that it would pick it up it would send it to um to uh, Research Emotion Service in Canada, and they would say, right, that this email account is tied to this particular BlackBerry device, so we're gonna send that out over the radio network to them, and that happened instantaneously. So you'd receive an email, and immediately a red light would start flashing on your BlackBerry pager, and you could then click a button, and it would download the text of the email to the BlackBerry, you could read it, and you could reply to it, and then the process was reversed. Now, in 2000, this was absolutely revolutionary. We did not have uh, 3G high-speed data networks running on cellular phones back then. And we didn't have phones with keyboards. Yeah, we had phones with number pads. We were all rocking the latest Nokia back then here in Europe. Um, you guys, I think, in the States were probably on the, on the Motorola. And you just couldn't do this with a phone. Yeah, so the fact that you could have a handheld device that allowed you to do two-way email and messaging, you could also do point-to-point -point messaging between Blackberries. Each Blackberry had a pin, uh, and you put in your, in your directory the pins of all your colleagues. So if you wanted to send a, an instant message directly to your colleague about something you're working on, you could do it without even using email. Sound familiar? So it basically, this was mobile email and iMessage, yeah, or WhatsApp, or any of those other messaging systems in 2000 over a dedicated network with dedicated devices. So unsurprisingly, this made BlackBerry an awful lot of money. Um, from 2001, they started to push more into the consumer space. They started to take advantage of um, the arrival of 2G and 3G networks, but their architecture was effectively the same. Um, if you went out in the early 2000s, you bought a BlackBerry as a consumer, you got something that was... Um, it looked like the BlackBerry Pages, but it also was a phone. Um, again, quite revolutionary at the time because smartphones at the time weren't that smart and they were very much more like phones. Whereas a BlackBerry was obviously, it looked more like a pocket computer um, with a phone attached to it. So you got one of those and, and if you didn't have, if you didn't work for a company who was running a BlackBerry Enterprise server, then you signed up for something called BlackBerry Internet Service, which basically was a kind of like a, public cloud version of of BlackBerry Enterprise Server. You basically, you would you would normally have to pay your carrier for um, a BlackBerry data plan, which opened up the connections to RIM servers. Um, and then they each carrier ran their own kind of equivalent cut down version of Bez called Biz, BlackBerry Internet Service, that then connected their uh, subscribers Blackberries to the internet and also allowed them to do push email from whatever their email email provider was, whether it be Google, whether it be Yahoo, whatever. Um, uh, and it worked pretty much the same way. Now these things were huge. Uh, and they were huge for a long time, even after the iPhone came along, because first of all, a lot of people wanted devices with keyboards. A lot of people were very skeptical that um, typing on a, on a glass screen wasn't perfect and i've got to be honest with you even today i sometimes struggle with my iphone to type um the predictive text in in ios is pretty terrible nowadays and, and has been for a few years but that's a topic for another day um but the other thing that kept blackberry going for a long time was the fact that this architecture this system was completely secure 
and it was built to be secure right from the beginning. A lot of companies in particular valued that, even when people started using iPhones for email um, and iPhones for messaging, because back before iMessage came along, um, messaging wasn't secure. There was no WhatsApp back back then. You were effectively using SMS, and SMS is not secure. It's completely open. Um, so it's not suitable for a lot of corporate stuff and email as well. Well, email still has problems even today. Back then, even the connections between your mobile phone and the email server you're talking to, whether it be an Outlook or an Exchange server or something like that, or in a corporate environment, or even your Gmail and everything, that that traffic wasn't um, that that traffic wasn't encrypted. So uh, you, you know somebody could quite easily scan your email now email today but server to server is still not secure so that is still a problem but um from a corporate point of view you wanted even your internal emails they they were secure because they were just flying around the same server you did not want those if you were running a company to be going over a wireless network um unencrypted so the fact that um blackberry did that um and their architecture was so strong was great and it really drove adoption of the devices particularly in the corporate space um the problem well the problems with blackberry really came along when the um when the iphone came along the blackberry devices were very low powered because they were evolved out of pages um they ran their apps were developed in java which was pretty limited they couldn't do any of the media stuff that people could do on the iphone um, and, and I think it's fair to say that while Blackberries remained in a very, very effective corporate tool, um, the iPhone made them look like dinosaurs. I mean, it really did. So why people still love them, and uh, famously, uh, Barack Obama um, was uh, kind of very wedded to his Blackberry, much to the consternation of the Secret Service. Um, they, uh, you know, they started to struggle they, they grew for a bit, but then as what well, I think what people didn't anticipate with the iPhone was that people would love it so much that it would bring it into their companies uh, and say, I want to use this here. And companies eventually capitulated. Um, and that was the beginning and the end for BlackBerry because they didn't have anything that was even close to what the iPhone could do. Um, and their advantages were stuff that um, a lot of people at the, at the cold face of a company just didn't appreciate. They frankly didn't care about the encryption or anything. They wanted the flexibility of a software keyboard and a, and a flat pane of glass. They wanted the power of the apps that um, the iPhone and then later Android could give them. And BlackBerry could not compete with that. So they, they really struggled. And I think the problem with the BlackBerry was that they were still run by engineers at the top. And those engineers basically could not move away from the the technical uh, beauty of the architecture they'd built. Um, and because they couldn't, they, they weren't prepared to throw that away and start again, they really struggled to, to deliver something that competed with our iPhone and Android in, in a reasonable period of time. In the meantime, they hemorrhaged clients, they hemorrhaged customers. So um, their first couple of attempts at competing with the iPhone really weren't great. Um, they did kind of get it together. They basically, what they did is they, um, the, um, the hardware in, in the Blackberries improved, uh, and uh, they uh, eventually the, the, the final ones were running Blackberry Seven. And while it was still far behind the iPhone, it actually at least could do video and a, and a reasonable web reasonable web browser and read PDF documents and m many of the sort of things that I think people who had iPhones appreciated in the corporate world. Um, but they had to start again, so they did. They they bought a new operating system in um, that was uh, called QNX. That actually is like a it's like a very stable um, real-time operating system designed for um, you know high criticality environments uh, and it's a very flexible platform and it was probably quite a good choice for them and they built um, a whole new set of systems and, and devices on top of that operating system the problem is it took them about five or six years to get it right um, and by the time they got stuff to market blackberry 10 which was the result of that came out about 2012 2013 um and and it was just too late i mean the the iphone by then had also evolved as well and they just were not competitive uh and they kind of have spiraled down ever since really they gradually transitioned to 
Um, the engineers who ran the company left, uh, and it's gradually transitioning to a software services company. And by all accounts, it's relatively successful at that, but it's nowhere near as big as it used to be. Um, and they're effectively, they're virtually unknown in the consumer space nowadays. They stopped selling their own hardware. Uh, BlackBerry 10 did not set the world on fire, which is actually a shame. I, I actually have a couple of BlackBerry 10 devices. You know what? They really are quite good. Um, and it's it's another one of those things where it's a shame they didn't come to market earlier because they are they are competitive and they do have some strengths and advantages. Um, and they even have still had devices with keyboards on. And you know what? <laughs> when you've been had five or six years of, of typing on a glass glass keyboard with with smart correct and getting things wrong and everything, going back to a hardware keyboard occasionally is actually quite nice. Nowadays, you can buy uh, an Android phone that runs BlackBerry software on top. Uh, and still has a hardware keyboard. They're now outsourced to a third-party company. BlackBerry doesn't design or make those anymore. Um, and BlackBerry has acquired several other companies and is quite, still relatively big in the like, mobile management space and that sort of thing. But um, their time in the spotlight as a consumer device, unfortunately, is now long gone. Uh, and uh, I'm hearing on the words on the grapevine is that actually lots of support for their, their older devices will start falling away this year as they wind down old services. So even people who are uh, running Blackberries and just to be stubborn will probably find that they, they stop working. Um, uh, and that will be the end of an era, frankly, because I would argue that without Research in Motion's original Blackberry designs, we wouldn't have the sort of smartphones we have today. Uh, and um, they are an integral part of the messaging and management culture that we have on our phones today. And certainly, you know, the privacy aspects of iMessage and email and the sorts of things that Apple talks about all the time were things that BlackBerry led the way on way back in, in the 2000s, nearly 20 years ago. So next time you're, uh, you're thinking about the history of the smartphone companies, pull one out for BlackBerry. And, um, you know, it's kind of a shame that they're going away. I, uh, I, I had many of those devices for, for a long time. And so they have a, a place in my heart. Okay. So I think that's everything that I wanted to cover for, for this week. Hopefully next week that, uh, Tim will be recovered as well. And we will be able to get back to our regular type of show. Please get in touch with us. If you want to talk about anything that I've talked about on the show today. Um, you can find us at our website. There's a contact form at techfanpodcast.com. You can email us. It's the show at techfanpodcast.com if you'll rather do that. Or alternatively, you can find um, the Tech Fan on, on Facebook uh, and Tech Fan Podcast on Twitter as well. So um, there you go. If you want to get in touch, you have ample ways to do that. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to uh, read out and respond to your comments on the show. I hope you all have a great week and I shall speak to you next week.